Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's one thing to forget where you put your keys now and then, but when it comes to early onset Alzheimer's, it may not be quite like that. When I find the keys, I don't go, oh crap, that's right, I laid them down. Instead, I turn to you and say, well, why did you take my keys and hide them? Dementia care education specialist Tipa Snow will tell you about other things to keep an eye out for and some useful ways she's found to navigate this disease. And you'll meet Marva Patterson and her husband Tyrone. What's it like for Tyrone when he experiences his symptoms while he's in conversation with someone? It's kind of hurtful because of the fact that you know it and then you try to bring it back, but you could tell by the looks on the faces. And what does one man who's living alone with the condition want you to know about his experience with it? Life does not end with the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's next on Audacious. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. There's really no way to begin this episode without stating the obvious. Early onset Alzheimer's disease is a scary condition. The causes are somewhat mysterious. Results and treatments are mixed and there's no cure. A diagnosis will impact everybody whom it touches logistically, financially, psychologically, and emotionally. Today you're going to meet a man living alone with early onset and a husband and wife team who are doing everything they can to make sure the husband is cared for. First, though, Tipa Snow will walk us through what we're really talking about here. She's been a dementia care education specialist with a background in occupational therapy for close to 40 years now. Here's how our conversation got started. Well, let's just jump in if, if that's cool. Um, dementia is the umbrella term here. And underneath, we've got a bunch of different manifestations of dementia. And for this show, we're talking about early onset Alzheimer's. Younger people. Right. Under 65. Under 65. So what? As young as 17. 17? Yeah. There's actually juvenile dementias. I mean, genetic coding that can cause a dementia at birth, after birth. They're, you know, infantile dementias. I mean, this is the unknown variable of you don't have to be old to get neurodegeneration in your brain. I mean, lots of things can trigger it and cause it. So when we're talking about early onset Alzheimer's, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about a variety. I mean, it's not all one thing because there are people who have specific genes. They're called pre-senile genes. And if you have those genes, your risk of getting dementia at a young age, maybe really young, is really, really high because you're genetically predestined to sort of have this issue in beta amyloid plaque formation and, and tau pathology. Um, there is another one where your risk is up higher. And so we know there are like a variety of genes. And so you could have a risk profile that goes way up. But when you have that one gene at young onset, boy, you're really at risk. But there are other ways you can have it happen with APOE is, is one of the alleles. You can have different variations and increase your risk as well, but not as, not as profoundly. It's one thing for me to misplace my keys or look for my sunglasses when they're on my head, but that's not that's not what we're talking about here. What are some really obvious signs that this is something different? Yeah, this is something different. So where you're really struggling to come up with the thing that you want to say, you know, the um, whatchamacallit, the thing that you say in the <laughs> so yeah, the, the uh, tip of my tongue, tip of my tongue. Uh, then I describe it in a very interesting way. So I say, you know, the, the utensil with tines, when I simply can't find the word fork. Now that's, that's sort of a backwards, we can find fork, but I might have a hard time coming up with a utensil with tines, a little different. Uh, impulse control. I get real impulsive in what I say or what I do or what kind of, I, I'm taking chances or risks that I wouldn't have done before is sort of one of those things. Um, it could also be that when we're having a conversation, 
in the middle of the conversation, even I go, now, what was it you said? And I'm finding that I can't hold on to what we call working memory. So as we're going through a conversation, I can't hold on to the beginning of the conversation when I'm in the middle or the end. And it's like, well, we just said that. And it's like, we did. And it's not, oh, yeah, but I forgot that I didn't get the detail of it. And I can't compensate. I'm not compensating anymore. Or I'm having trouble with recent stuff, like three weeks ago, what happened? Or I'm starting to um, think things are true that are not true, or my brain starts making stuff up to fill in the blank spaces called confabulation. I start thinking visual things are happening that aren't happening. We tend to call them hallucinations, but you know, I'm seeing things that aren't actually there, but I think they're there. So there's, there's a variety of things I could be doing. Um, I'm not interested in things I used to be interested in. You're just really noticing uh, not wanting to do that, those things anymore. And it's like, well, where's that coming from? Or my anxiety goes way up and I'm really stressed and distressed about things I've never been that stressed or distressed about. Or my emotions are either flattened or all over the place. So I'm changing. I mean, you really see ways in which I'm changing. And when I find the keys, I don't go, oh, crap, that's right. I laid them down when I was getting stuff out of the freezer. Instead, I turn to you and say, well, why did you take my keys and hide them? See, this is you don't want me driving, do you? And so I sort of get this flavor of against one another versus supported by one another. When you do get a diagnosis like Alzheimer's, early onset Alzheimer's, what is the first thing the patient and their caretaker should do? Recover. Because you just received either the thing you were most afraid of. I mean, you were afraid that was what it was going to be and it was confirmed. And so you're grieving or you're shocked that that's what it is. And you actually need some time and support to process. And you should be getting immediate support. I'm going to give you some rough information here. Tell me what you know about dementia or Alzheimer's or Lewy body disease or frontal temporal dementia. Um, okay. So that's what you know about it. And that's, I think all too often the missing thing that is not said before I say you have it is what, tell me what you know about those. Um, nothing or, Oh, my grandma had, it was awful. I want to be real careful as a provider, should be real careful how I then broach your living with it. Because um, what we'll need to do is figure out how to match up with you so that your support matches your need, not me delivering bad news to you and just saying, yeah, and there's not a lot we can do about it. There's no cure. Um, you know, you probably, and this is still way too often status quo. You probably better get your affairs in order. You need to pick a healthcare power of attorney. It's like with early identification, this is my first message. <laughs> Go home, get my affairs in order and pick a decider for me. Uh, wait, I'm early. And it's like, that's unfortunately, uh, estimates are somewhere around 70, 75%. That's still a messaging that people are getting. And so there's a very high risk for suicide and depression immediately after a, a young onset or an early state condition identification. Instead of what we should be doing, it's like, well, there's some, you know, I think we've got a new normal going on here, but it was where you were yesterday. Now we can start identifying what we can do about it to promote wellness and fitness and help you be the best you can be where you're at and your whole team together here. That was dementia care education specialist Tifa Snow, based out of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. You're going to hear more from her in the final segment of the show. Now, meet Brian Van Buren of Charlotte, North Carolina. He started experiencing memory issues when he was 50, but he wasn't formally diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's until age 64. He was a 2017 member of the National Alzheimer's Association Early Onset Advisory Group, and he's currently a member of the Dementia Action Alliance Advisory Board, bringing awareness of the condition to people of color and the LGBTQIA community. I asked him when he first started noticing that something was wrong with his memory. Well, as early as 2015, I was having problems with my short-term memory. I was losing things. Uh, I was missing appointments. 
and I just chalked it up to getting older. However, my mom died of Alzheimer's four years ago, and both of my grandmothers died of Alzheimer's. So I knew in the back of my mind that it was probably early onset Alzheimer's, but I didn't want to uh, admit it at the time. Because I was taking care of my aunt and my mom at the same time. I was their caretaker. So that was being an overload for me to have to deal with my own diagnosis. What was it like when you got the diagnosis? Well, my doctor wasn't very helpful. He told me to go home and get my affairs in order. And that was all he told me. He didn't tell me any kind of references and things like that. So basically, he told me to go home and die, which I did. I went home for three months and laid in bed feeling sorry for myself. And then finally, I just said, look, Brian, you're, you've been an advocate. You've been an active person your whole life. So get up out of bed and do something about it. So what was it you did about it? I went to the computer and then just started looking up Alzheimer's. And I found the Alzheimer's Association. So I got a hold of them. And they just were starting a new support group for early onset Alzheimer's the following week, which I became a member of. And from there, it just kind of snowballed, and I was involved with many organizations and many invitations. So I became an advocate. I'd like to hear about what your symptoms are like now, seven years after you began noticing some memory loss. Well, one, I have problems with depth perception now, uh, which is common with people with Alzheimer's. And I just find myself lost sometimes. I mean, I'm in one room going to the next room and then I don't know why I went to the next room and I'm constantly misplacing things. I was looking for my keys one day for 30 minutes and they were in my hand. So when you look down and you see your keys in your hands, how does that feel? It makes me feel stupid (laughs) and disappointed because I realized that you know, that's not normal behavior for most people. I don't know what it's like to be in your shoes in a lot of ways, but I think about, you know, if I were to feel that way and it were to happen over and over again, that it would be easy to maybe slip into a depression uh, or something like that. Is that something you're up against? Uh, yes, constantly. I uh, I was married for eight years and it was a long distance relationship. My partner was Brazilian, so we had an apartment in Rio de Janeiro, and we had my home here. And because of COVID, we hadn't seen each other since uh, 2020. And the United States finally allowed South Americans to come back into the United States. And so we saw each other for the first time, and his comment when he saw me was, your Alzheimer's has gotten worse and I don't think I want to be in a relationship with you anymore. And that ended my marriage right then. So then I felt really abandoned because I'm trying to figure out who's going to take care of me. And at present time, no one, there's no one to take care of me right now. Brian, I'm really sorry to hear that. That's, that's hard. Well, it happens, you know, but unfortunately, I have no family. I am the only survivor out of my whole family. So as a matter of fact, I mean, what's called a man cave, and I'm looking up at my shelf, and I have five urns of ashes of my family. How are you lately? Like, are you feeling under the thumb of this more often than not, or are you maintaining some sort of joy, uh, in everyday life? Uh, actually, what has, what has happened is there's an international organization called Couchsurfing. It's very much like Airbnb, where people travel around the world. They'll send you an email and ask if they can crash at your house or your floor, or your bed, or whatever. I have an extra bedroom and I have an extra bathroom. So before COVID, I was hosting two, three couples a week. So I just had a couple leave from Germany today. And they were my 168 guests. So when people come to stay with you, do you tell them right off the bat, hey, you should know I have Alzheimer's? Well, my shirt says it. (laughs) But you'd be surprised at how many people already know about Alzheimer's or they have a family member that had it. 
or someone in their family died from it. So it's almost like we have a Alzheimer's 101 education class. And they're very open and very receptive. You said you have a shirt. What does it say? Life does not end with the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Is that, you think, the common misconception? Yeah, most people's perception of Alzheimer's is an older person in a wheelchair, probably nonverbal, and not realizing, especially now that much more younger people are getting diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. I went to a conference just before COVID. The man was 57 years old who had Alzheimer's, and his 28-year-old son had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's as well. Yeah, and there's no telling how fast it... No, no, because there's nothing to slow it down. There's no treatment, no prevention, no cure. So it's just something you just kind of have to live with. And you can make the best of it or you can make the worst of it. You were talking earlier about how you um, would go from one room to the next and not know why. And I think that's a familiar feeling for many of us, but not not often. And when you would look down... Uh, and realize the keys you'd been looking for were in your hand the whole time. I wonder when it comes to the memories that you've got or that you know you've got, like, do you remember the childhood stuff pretty clearly and it's just the recent stuff that's hard? Where? What's your memory set up like right now? I remember the Gettysburg Address when I was in sixth grade and I can recite the whole thing. Ask me what I ate yesterday and I couldn't tell you. But I do have a sisters. I have uh, Alexa and Siri that I use now. I give information for the day to Alexa as to what I need to do. I tell them, tell her where my keys are. She reminds me to take my meds. She reminds me to, to take the dog out. She keeps me up to date. I don't think I could have lived alone without having Alexa here. Huh. Is that how you see maybe the future of how people can live as long as possible safely and happily or something like it in their own homes as they're going through this? Absolutely. Yes. What would be an even better invention or an an even better expansion of an existing invention that would make your life even easier? Well, unfortunately, there's a lot of psychological things that come along with having Alzheimer's. Uh, anxiety, depression, paranoia, suicidal ideation, all those things. So I have a life coach that I see every other week who specializes in working with people with Alzheimer's. So I'm able to meet with her, talk about things that maybe I'm paranoid about that aren't really real, and we're able to process those kind of things. So I've been very fortunate to uh, have found her. What do you think would be different about you if you had not found her? Oh, I would be dead, for sure. Um, There were points where I was very suicidal and very, very depressed. and just felt like I was in this big hole and I just could not get out of it. So I was able to process my thoughts and fears with her as opposed to just not having anyone available and just kind of giving in which is not that hard to do, to give in. So what does give you hope? Public speaking. I enjoy speaking at conferences and things like that. Uh, Just before COVID, I spoke at a conference in Florida in front of 1,200 people. So I've been on TV. I've been in uh, Good Morning America. I've been on every newspaper. And as a matter of fact, I don't know... If you know who Dr. Sanjay Gupta is? Yeah, yeah. He just wrote a new book about the brain, and he featured me in the book on page 249. <laughs> and now you're on Audacious. Yes. Another notch. Another notch, exactly. What's really cool about having Alzheimer's? Is there anything good about it? Well... I tell people the best thing that ever happened to me was being diagnosed with Alzheimer's because it allowed me a purpose in life and allowed me to once again become an advocate, which I have done my whole life. And just a person out there, I wear a button that says, advocate living with Alzheimer's. 
And so that gets me into a lot of conversations with people. I've done a lot of education for people because, you know, first of all, they want to know why am I wearing that button? And then, of course, I get the comment, but you're so articulate and you don't look like it. And so I end up having to explain to people. You've you've been through a lot and, and you're a veteran, you're a therapist and an advocate, a flight attendant. You've been a husband. You're an advocate for those living with Alzheimer's. How, with all of that in your life, how do you hope people always see you? I hope people saw me as an extremely positive, caring, giving person who was concerned about problems of the world and not just sat back and thought about it, but actually did something about some of those things. And so it makes me very proud to know that I I was involved with so many things that helped change many, many people's lives or made their lives much easier. Well, Brian Van Buren, thank you very, very much for talking with me. Thank you so much. The Alzheimer's Association has a 24-7 helpline, and that number is 800-272-3900. We'll have it on our website, too, at ctpublic.org slash audacious. When we get back, meet a man with early-onset Alzheimer's and his wife, who cares for him. The worst part is it when I see the grandkids and I wake up and they, they're not there. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, we're getting to know people who have early-onset Alzheimer's. That means they were diagnosed before the age of 65. Later, we'll hear again from dementia care education specialist Tipa Snow, but right now I want you to meet Marva and Tyrone Patterson. They're pastors at Rescue Temple in East Hartford, Connecticut, and this coming December 31st, they'll been married for 39 years. I asked Marva to talk about when she realized something was changing in Tyrone. She told me that beginning around January of 2021, she noticed that he was losing concentration, he was becoming more irritable, He was sleeping more and repeating conversations. When he had to get his hazmat recertification for work, it took him over 25 tries to pass the test. And when he couldn't remember which of her two work locations he dropped her off at, she knew they had to talk about it. So I had the conversation with him. He said, don't be trying to psychoanalyze me, right? And I said, I'm not. I said, this is the hardest conversation I think you're going to ever have in my life. But I need you to talk to me about what's going on with you. I noticed some changes, and I didn't want to put anything in his thoughts, but I wanted him to tell me. And so he started telling me that, yeah, honey, a couple of times I've forgotten this, that, and the other. And I said, okay, we have to make a doctor's appointment. I, I can't do this, but let's, let's go see what's going on. And then the testing did prove what I had suspicion of, because I had worked in... I worked at the atrium for years, and so I knew the size of dementia and Alzheimer's. And I was just praying, and his grandmother just recently passed, and I had taken care of her. And I started seeing the sign, and I was just like, Lord, please don't let this be real. But he was open to go find out what was going on. And that was the largest part of what 
we needed to do because some people want to fight you too now and want to deny. But he was like, I need to find out what's going on. And I noticed a change in me as well. Tyrone, you know, you've known yourself your whole life. You've known how you like to do things. You know what your standards are. You know how much you love your wife. You know how to get to work. And now you're noticing these changes, Tyrone. And I wonder, you know, part of me thinks if I were going through this, I'd be so scared. And part of me thinks I'd also like to have hope. I'd also like to get creative with the problem solving here. Like there, there's a lot of feelings involved. Can you tell me about what some of your most prominent feelings are over this time that you've been diagnosed? Yes, it's, it's, it's scary because you can wake up and, and you feel like it's a dream. And I'm going to the bathroom, but I'm going to the closet. And I'm going to the closet. I wake up and I'm in a closet. It's so scary to the point that I'm thinking back in the days way back where I, I told the wife that I had this car, but we we was in New York and I need to drive it home. And my wife was telling me, we don't, we're home. We're not in New York. We're here. Where's Tavon, which is our grandson. Tavon was here with me, right? And he wasn't here. And it was scary because anything could have happened, not knowing that I was doing this. And uh, when something like that happens and she's explaining to you the truth it it has to be some sort of internal battle because you you know what you're thinking you know what you believe you're you're you in there and you've got someone you love and trust telling you otherwise telling you something that you at the time don't think is true like that's the car no i know what i'm talking about like will you talk about that that leap from i know what i'm talking about but then i've got this person i love and trust saying no honey that's not true like how do you get from there to there. Hmm, that's a good one. I, I feel like, okay, at that time, you playing with me, or is this a joke? Or is this, are you real? Are you for real? And then when it comes to, I find out that it's, it's, it's real, it scared me. It really scared me because anything could happen at any given time, not knowing. What if I would have walked out the house? What if I just took off and just went somewhere and didn't know or she didn't know? Does it hurt? Yes. But I tried to cope with it because I got nothing else to do but just trust, you know, you know what I believe in that I, I believe in that the Lord will will heal me. I believe the Lord will help me. I believe that whole, wholeheartedly. You know what the, the the worst part is it, it's about is that when I see the grandkids and they and I wake up and they not wake up but when I come through with this they not there they not there that's one of the reasons that I really want to see my grandkids and I they don't for some reason the mother don't bring them around I don't know if it's because they scared because of what might happen or what but it hurts. It's already bad enough what I'm going through and then have to deal with this, but I can't see my grandkids. I mean, what else can I live for? But I got them. I got my wife too, true, but I, I definitely want to see my grandkids, but I don't want to wake up in the middle of the night and thinking that they dare. I want to see them for real. You'd mentioned that the Lord will heal you and you are confident. I wonder uh, right now how you square this happening to you? What role does God play in this whole experience? My husband and I have been through some medical things. In 2011, I was diagnosed with liver cancer and liver disease. And my doctor, is, who is still my doctor today, Dr. Michael Einstein, told my husband and I that I was not going to live and that for me to get my house in order, and I had a dream, and the dream said for me to tell him that I was going to be a miracle, and he was going to write about me, which I'm here 10 years later, and he did write about me. We went on, um, I don't know if I can say this show, but we went on Better Connecticut. Kara Silent came and interviewed us, right? At the time, Tyrone lost his vision in his left eye, literally could not see. We went to every neural doctor, everybody, 
Nate said he would never get his sight back. There was nothing they could do. And in my dream, I heard the spirit tell me, you tell Tyrone that when you're finished with your healing, he'll get his eyesight back. So my last treatment was July 26, 2012. September the 20th, Tyrone eyesight came back out the blue. And the doctor still couldn't understand how he got it. So I know the God that we serve is a miracle working God. So I believe, I believe and stand on the word of God that Tyrone is going to be the first miracle with Alzheimer's. And that your interview is going to say one day, oh my God, I remember them saying that. We will definitely have a follow-up interview then. Thank you, go on. <laughs> we believe the word of God and we know this is part of his journey. And wherever his journey takes us, we're going to still stand on the word of God. We know that his will is his will. And we're not going to step out of line with God. We're going to trust him all the way through. So that's what we have to hold on to. You know, I can't say that I'm healed from it now, but I believe down the line I will be. I'm, I'm, I'm headed toward that way. I'm going to give it all my all in all because that's all I can do. So, but if it if it's not for me, then it wasn't meant to be. But I'm going to I'm going to keep that in my heart and I'm going to keep that in my mind that God will heal me. That's that's one thing that I have to do. That makes me feel good for just just by that anyway, just to keep something going on in my heart that God can heal me. It's obvious even in a generic way how this could strain a relationship, but I'd like to hear in what ways this experience has brought you closer? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I've always been a lioness anyway. Um, you mess with my husband, you've got your hands full. <laughs> and, and vice versa, right? And I, I think I have become a little overly protective of him because um, I know what kind of triggers him. Um, he doesn't like to hear anything negative or someone treating somebody else bad because I noticed that he hangs on to the negative. And so I, I try to make everything, not roses because roses have thorns, but I try to make the, the picture brighter and to keep the most positive and affirming things around him because negative brings negative. So every day I reassure him that I'm still in love with you and I love you and I'm not going anywhere. And I'm, we're here to death do his part. That don't mean suicide homicide. That just means when God calls us home. I, when I do a wedding ceremony, I tell him that that does not mean that you decide that you want to kill her and yourself or hit vice versa. That means when God calls home on, your, on his time. Tyrone, when your symptoms of Alzheimer's come up, when you're talking with somebody, how aware are you that you're experiencing them? And how do you navigate it? I, I can somewhat tell. And because they, the conversation and the looks on their face, you know, they're looking like, oh boy, you know, is, did he leave or did he went off to the left on us again or what? But then it's kind of hurtful because of the fact that you know it and then you try to bring it back. And then, you know, you feel foolish. You feel like, okay, did I, I left them here and couldn't answer. What was, the, what was that again? I don't know where to go with it. So, and then that's when they go, oh, I, he, he lost it again. And, but you could tell by the looks on the faces. And then you don't know. You feel bad, but then you just don't know what to say. I just don't say anything. You know, I just wait until something else come out. And, or I try to uh, change the conversation somewhat, you know, or go to something else that I know they talk about. Or, or then you just sit there. You feel almost stupid, I want to say. I, I, I know it's harsh, but that's the feeling that I get. Marva, when you are with Tyrone and he's he's misremembering something um, or there's this drastic change and you feel compelled to correct him and say, no, Tyrone, that's not the truth or that's not the case. Are there times where you choose to say, 
Yep, you're right. When he's not. Nope. <laughs> 100% honesty at all times. Because we always made, we made a promise to each other. He asked me to always be honest with him, no matter what it is or if it hurts or not. Because I don't want him to ever lose the trust in me. Because then when he recognizes that I did lie or I, I validated, because you know they tell us to validate, that's a lie. And we have to answer to God. And I don't want to drop dead that I just told my husband a lie and then I end up in hell because that's what I believe. So I have to be honest. I have to be honest because I never want him to not trust anything I say or do because that's important. I never want him to get in a comfortable place that somebody's just nodding yes just to please him. No. Because his brain, I want it to continue to work and keep it as sharp as possible. And he'll tell you every day I give him a crossword puzzle or, or oh, something yeah. to do. And he's not going to sit and be idle and have slob coming down his mouth looking like no one cares. I'm, every day we read a scripture. We're going to pray. We're going to we eat together. We He goes to work with me until I can get somebody to be a companion here. And so that's how we keep it. And even when we're at work, Here's some puzzles. Here, bother somebody. But no, no, we, no, we, um, we keep it real. Tyrone, earlier I was asking about in what ways this experience has made you feel closer to each other, and I didn't get your answer. How do you feel closer? In what ways do you feel closer to Marva now? I feel closer to my wife now, and I think she feels closer to me too. We, it's, a, it's a together thing. And because of what I'm going through right now, I have to lean on her even more. And I, and I asked her, I said, would, are you, would you be tired? Are you tired of me with this? She said, never. She assured me, never. And I believe that because you know why? I would do it for her. I have done it for yeah. her. I have done some things that she went through. And I was there. I was there for her 100%. And she said the same thing for me, and I do believe it wholeheartedly that she would be there for me. As I hear you two talk about each other, I just think hashtag relationship goals. <laughs> you are such bright lights, and I hope that talking about this and being present with me uh, has given you a bit of time away from looking back and looking forward and just being here with me now. It's been a true honor to hear your story and to meet you too. Thank you so much, Marva and Tyrone Patterson. I'm so deeply appreciative of your time and your stories and experience today. We appreciate you too. Thank yes, you yes, for listening to us. God Thank bless you. you. We're going out of this segment with Marva and Tyrone's song, I Will Always Love You by Taylor Dane. After the break, some things to keep in mind about early onset Alzheimer's with dementia care education specialist, Tipa Snow. Looking at your lifestyle and going, okay, am I socially connected? Am I doing things regularly that are good and healthy for my brain to grow new synapses? I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. You're listening to the new investigative reporting podcast, In Absentia, which means you're interested in getting to the facts and uncovering the truth. If you'd like to help us continue our investigative work, consider making a donation. Visit ctpublic.org slash tap support and contribute today. That's ctpublic.org slash TAP support. Thank you for being a part of the Accountability Project. So, you've never donated to this station before? That's okay. Public Media Giving Days are a great time to make your first gift. Here's how. Give now at ctpublic.org slash donate. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. To learn more about early-onset Alzheimer's, we're hearing again from Tipa Snow. She's been specializing in dementia care education for close to 40 years. 
using what she calls a positive approach to care. I was telling her about the part of my interview with Marva and Tyrone when I asked Marva if she ever lies to Tyrone, like when he's thinking he's in another decade and he doesn't know where his car is. And Marva said, nope, never. She needs him to know that she will 100% of the time tell him the truth. At the same time, I also know that there are a lot of schools of thought about how and when to be honest. So what does Tipa think about all that? So I don't lie, but I don't tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, because I think it wounds. So I'm going to you imagine you have your car. So you say to me, where's my old car? Go ahead and say it to me and I'll, I'll give you a for instance. Where's my old car? Oh, so you're wanting to know where your old car is. Now, tell me about the car, because I'm trying to think of the car you're talking about. Uh, 1973 Ford Maverick. Oh, the Ford Maverick. Yeah. Now, ooh, we had some fun times in that car, didn't we? We did. I think I remember that time we took that trip to Sedona. Oh, my God, to Sedona. Yeah. Now, do you remember when the car did? Was it a flat <laughs> tire or now did I lie? No, that's good. What I did is your brain came up with something. I'm wondering where the old car is, because in your brain, your brain went, I would really like freedom. I would really like to go somewhere. I would really like to have my life back. And I said, okay, I can't change your brain, but I can work with you. And we can, that's the treatment that I think makes a difference because your face lit up, your eyes lit up. Your I know, it wasn't even up. my car. It wasn't even your car, but in that moment, it was like, oh yeah, because we had episodic memories that we hold on to and they have emotional value. They're connected to the survival system, the amygdala. And so when I can make those connections, you know, it's not about lying or telling the truth. It's about finding out what the unmet need is that the person is expressing and then figuring out how to support that need with something that meets the need. So there are specific skills that you start to develop. And if you're emotional, so say, I hate this. Go ahead and say that. I hate this. You're hating this. I don't like it either. This is really hard. And I hate it for both of us. Go ahead and say it again. And let me give you the standard. I hate this. It's okay. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not. No, it's not. Now you're lying to me. Yeah. And I'm trying to put a Band-Aid on because I don't want to deal with your pain and your hurt. And I don't want you to be in pain or hurt. So I'm just going to put a Band-Aid on it and act like that's enough. And it's like, no, I need to be willing to come to your pain and your hurt and help figure out how to bring you back. So I hate it for you. I hate it for both of us. Ooh, now this is called an interjection. Ooh, I have a big favor to ask of you. Okay. I could use your help. Okay. All right. Now, what happened to the, I hate this. Ooh, I have been completely redirected. Yeah, because in its interjection, not an interruption. And I use my sound, my voice, and how I did it. I could go, ooh, I've got an idea. Or, ooh, wow. Listen, I have a question for you. Okay, what's that? Now, notice how each time there's this pause and I wait. And sure enough, you'll come in with a what? Because what I'm saying is come out with me. Come with me. Um, You're in this bad place. Come with me. All those resources become what we can focus in on rather than inwardly feeling that level of loss and grief and pain and inability. It makes me think of the word manipulation, but not in a crappy way. Like it's, is there another word for what that is as instead of manipulation? It's skillful assist. It's skillful support. It's really being skillful at helping initiation take place. Because one of the realities I didn't say early on is people lose the ability to initiate, to initiate interactions, to initiate tasks, to initiate um, a sense of efficacy, they lose initiation. And when you lose initiation, it's easy to go into apathy. So my ability to prepare and get ready and then initiate can get you to participate. And it's basically being skillful. As I'm listening to you talk about these methods of redirection, which are creative, I'm thinking as scary and as unpredictable as Alzheimer's can be, in some ways, it's also a 
tremendous opportunity for the caretaker to grow, right? To be more compassionate, to be more creative as you communicate. And just, I don't know, this idea that the experience of being a caretaker also offers you a kind of amazing opportunity for growth if you're up for it or if you're not. Now, the interesting thing, as long as we see ourselves as caretakers, we're already defining the relationship as unequal. When I describe myself as a care partner in this, I'm partnering with you in care. All of a sudden, the dynamic is different because we're in partnership. And sometimes you're good at something that I'm not. And sometimes I'm good at something you're not. It empowers me to change my brain. And I am literally building new synapses in a powerful, positive way that can protect my brain from distress, which is one of the highest risk factors for developing your dementia if it's not genetic. I mean, is when you live in distress and you put out cortisol all the time um, and you feel disempowered and you feel like you're a victim and you feel you got the PTSD going on, you know, this is not a healthy place to be. And so really feeling like... That was interesting. So here's one I want to try next time. <laughs> you know, that ability to be flexible is huge in this. And when you're feeling the inflexibility, having the ability to go, I need a break, I need a timeout, raise your hand and say, who have I got in the wings who could help for a bit? And making sure my partner, my person living with dementia, knows them well enough that when I step away, they're not feeling abandoned. That becomes really critical. So when I said, don't do this alone, I mean, literally, we've got to build network sooner and not hide. This is a game of hide and seek, and we need to quit playing hide and seek with our brains. It doesn't make any sense. We've tried it. It's a bust. So I'm 42. Uh, I know my grandfather had some sort of dementia at the end of his life. What can I do? Should I, is there a test available to me? Uh, you could, and you could, if that all you is all you have as a grandfather on one side that was late in his life, the greatest risk of getting many dementias, not a young onset, but late life dementia is getting old and your lifestyle through how you've lived. And so looking at your lifestyle and going, okay, am I socially connected? Am I doing things regularly that are good and healthy for my brain to grow new synapses? Am I doing things regularly that are great for my body because you know blood flow and oxygenation and fuel consumption? Am I eating and drinking moderately and well? Am I um, managing stress effectively? Have I got stress management coping strategies that work for me and are healthy ones? Um, do I have value and purpose in my life on a daily basis? Do I find joy and be and satisfaction in being alive every day? If you have those, you are reducing your risk dramatically. Well, then protect your brain from insults and injuries and don't get over, over anxious about drugs or alcohol, you know, those kind of things. But those are risk reducers that are significant for almost all kinds of dementia. I feel like there is a fear about dementia that is righteous. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It is hard to live with dementia, whether it's in my brain or the person I really care about. It's really hard to live with it. But it's hard to live with a lot of conditions and in a lot of situations and circumstances. And it's like, and still people can find moments of joy and still people can find value and purpose. And the question is, are you worth it? As long as we believe people are worth it and there's value in a human being, to me, we'll figure it out. I mean, we'll figure it out. Yeah, it sucks. I mean, that's really hard to think people are trying to poison you. And I mean, I hate that for you. So tell me a little bit about when that started. You know, we got to figure out, wow, so somebody is really scared. Got it. And the whole thing is complicated and everybody wants it to be simple. And it isn't. I like the part about joy. Yeah, it's really critical. Value and joy are the two things that make life worth living. Do I have value? Um, you know, am I doing anything that makes a difference in the world? People want to make a difference one way or the other. And so when I said, oh, could you help me? For you, that was, you know, oh, I want to try something. I have a question for you. 
which means you have value. There's value, and and that turns the tide. Tipa Snow, you are so good at this. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for talking with me. Well, you too. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you, because it, you know, the only way we're going to change this uh, paradigm and this dynamic is to start talking about it in a way that isn't victims. We don't have victims. We have people living with dementia. Right. These aren't victims. These are creators, co-creators. Yeah. They're experts. (laughs) So, well, let's figure this out. Audacious is always lovingly produced by me, Jessica Severin DiMartinez, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, with help from our interns, Jacob Gannon and Taylor Doyle. Special thanks this week to Christy Koval. She's the Director of Public Policy for the Alzheimer's Association of Connecticut, and you can support their powerful and important work at alz.org ct. And their 24-7 helpline number is 800-272-3900. Subscribe to this show and share it with your friends. And if this episode really spoke to you, check out the one we recorded with Sam Buck and his mom, Allison. Sam was 10 years old when we recorded our conversation in 2020 about his rare neurological condition, vanishing white matter disease, which for the most part is exactly what it sounds like. It primarily affects children and it's untreatable, incurable, and terminal. And Sam is just about one of the funniest, sweetest, and most positive kids I've ever met. He's 12 now, and he's still getting out into the world, seeing concerts, and dressing up as his favorite soccer goalie for Halloween. You can find that conversation and so many more at ctpublic.org audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for leaving that review on Apple Podcasts. That's how the unfeeling podcast machine knows to favor our show. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kyone Wolf, or send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.